the go live button. Did that work? That should have worked. All right, hey everybody, uh, I'm just gonna assume this works. Um, I, once again, it's time for Open Space. This week, I'm joined by Professor Greg Gigian uh, from Penn State University, and we're gonna talk about UFOs. Hey Greg, right. welcome to uh, Open Space. Thanks, I'm delighted to be here. All right, so uh, who are you and uh, what do you do? <laughs> Besides UFOs. Well, um, including uh, UFOs, I'm, uh, but yeah. Historian. I'm a historian by trade, a historian of science and medicine. Uh, and uh, for a lot of years, I've worked primarily in a lot of things that are related to the history of medicine, particularly the history of psychiatry, done some research and written on the history of, of criminality and thick fields like criminology. But uh, more recently, I've gotten very interested in the history of, of the paranormal and very specifically became really fascinated with exploring the history of the whole UFO and alien contact phenomena that emerged right after World War II. Um, and that sort of has kind of uh, captured my attention for a good, oh, I'd say five or six years now, and I'm writing a book about the subject. Uh, you came across my radar, pardon the pun, um, uh, I guess about a week ago or so, but you actually have an article that's coming out in Smithsonian Air and Space talking about how this is the year of the of the UFO. And I, I absolutely agree with you. Um, we are in the we are definitely in the year of the UFOs. It's been a it's been a big year for for news across this front. Um, oh. so, so what's kind of interesting to me is that um, <clears throat> I, I, if you were to have talked with me and heard me speak about this subject maybe even three years ago, four years ago, um, I was one of those people who said we really are seeing kind of the slow sort of dissolution of this phenomenon. It was sort of sort of leaving mainstream pop culture and was really becoming very much a kind of a, a phenomenon and a, and a sort of a, a thread for discussion that was really only found on sort of the margins of certain internet sites and, and then sort of uh, some sort of cable television shows. Um, there seemed to be a lot of good evidence and I can sort of cite some of that, 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 that it really measurably was not a, a subject that was capturing anybody's attention in the mainstream part of pop culture. That significantly changed a few years ago. Um, and, and really the trigger for it was in December of 2017, when you had this big New York Times, Washington Post Politico story about this supposed um, secret UFO program that existed in the Defense Department um, between 2007 and 2012 called ATIP. And um, that really sort of set a whole thing, bunch of things in motion. And then really over the past couple of years, it's been building and building. And yeah, last year, a whole a number of different kinds of, of stories came out that all sort of fed off of one another that, that basically put, put, put UFOs back on the map right. and got all of our attention. Well, I think though, I mean, that's part of it, but I think a lot of the rise of uh, certain kinds of channels on YouTube have also fed a lot into this. I mean, you know, it's not like the 
the US military released some secret videos on the earth being flat and yet flat earth and anti-vaccination um, conspiracy theory videos really took off. And I think a lot of that is just the just this sort of um, extremification across all fronts that YouTube really experienced over the last couple of years. I mean, they've they've admitted that they had a real problem and have reined it in for better or for worse over the last probably six months of this year. But I think that has to play a big part in it's sort of like a perfect storm. You've got some pretty juicy information coming out of the out of the government itself matched with an amplification machine that is perfectly positioned to get the word out and push people to the most extreme version of that at the same time. Yeah, I mean, I certainly don't disagree with that. You know, my point I often make is that um, it, when you view this phenomenon at, uh, historically, as a historian, through a historian's eyes, uh, I make the point that UFOs don't just happen. <laughs> They're made. That is to say, there's so many parts, so many different actors and institutions and events that feed into, that make this into something, right? Yes, people have experiences of seeing something odd or taking a photo or a film of something odd or strange. Uh, but for that to become a thing, a, a UFO, a flying saucer, whatever it's gonna be called at any particular period of time, it's gonna take a whole bunch of people and a bunch of different steps to go from, I saw something strange to, I'm going to tell other people about it, to I'm going to describe it, to I'm going to report it. I'm going to then those people are going to report it to somebody else, or I'm going to take the time to post it online. Or back in the old days, I'm going to form a saucer club and share my experience with other people who are interested in this like me. And then, you know what, you and I, we're going to get together, we're going to form a small group that now prints out our own sort of flyer and newsletter to other interested people. Um, uh, that kind of, of sort of uh, 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 desire to communicate about this and to share this information with other people who then in turn share that with other people, that's been there from the very beginning, but it means that therefore necessarily the UFO has to be understood as something that has a history. That is to say, it is peopled. People play a very important role in how this all plays out. And so the people, in a sense, have to be followed, whether that's, as you talk about online groups, or we talk about 40 or 50 years ago when people were sitting there with their own personal mimeograph machines yeah. uh, creating newsletters about. But the difference has got to be the speed now, like that <clears throat> a per that you can go from, from citing to dissemination of information almost instantly. And then of course, matched with the tools to, uh, you know, the the camera gear, the, you know, that just that everyone has at their disposal. I mean, even just with a phone, right? Everybody has at their disposal, a machine capable of recording bizarre and otherworldly events um, at any time. Yeah. Now, <clears throat> the speed is no question that that is one of the major differences from previous generations of this phenomenon. Though I, I still am, I will say, I often talk about this uh, uh, with students of mine when we, we talk about the history of, of, 
flying saucer groups. I mean, already in the 1950s, you had an organization like the Aerial Phenomena Research Organization, APRO, which is founded in Wisconsin, moves to Arizona uh, by a couple. And within the span of just a few years, this small little kind of what was intended to be a little kind of flying saucer group of enthusiasts turned into an international organization with correspondence, literally, I think literally or close to it, on every continent with people reporting in information, exchanging information, and, and, and getting this on a monthly basis so that they were trading information across really large expanses on a shoestring budget. Yeah, the speed wasn't quite the same, but what to me is fascinating is how they had created an international network of enthusiasts who could share this stuff with one another and sort of share their ideas and their excitements and their speculations about it. So the speed is the one thing that's changed and the technology as you talk about has changed. And that, that is what gives it a different flavor and of course means things can move really, really fast. And, and so, I mean, the fact that groups of people could get together to share their experiences and their opinions and their photographs and, and whatever scraps of evidence that they had at the time, in a time when it was incredibly difficult to make, to, have, to build those kinds of networks. I mean, there just, there was no internet. Like you were sending mail, you were like, it, it required an enormous amount of dedication to the cause to be able to, to make those communications happen. So, so what is it about the topic that encouraged that level of enthusiasm? That's a really good question. Um, you know, one of the things I, 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 I will say is I think has to be appreciated is that throughout its entire history, this UFO phenomenon, the people who have uh, engaged with it and been involved with it, that community of people is a very diverse community. They, they come from different walks of life. It's hard to generalize. There are going to be, and there were really already in say the early fifties as this thing was sort of taking shape and people were sort of moving into the point where they were saying, now what, what, how can we theorize this? Well, how can we make sense of it? Um, there were people whose perspective on this was that this is a pivotal moment in human history. Uh, that that we are we are witnessing and uh, 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 almost really end times in the sense that these aliens are are sort of our space brothers and space sisters. They're here to save us from the the, the menace we've created ourselves with nuclear weapons and atomic energy and all of that, and they're here to to, to do this. And so it's a quasi religious experience. There are plenty of others at that exact same period of time who have no interest in that whatsoever. For, for many of them, and still to this day, for many people, what this is, is this is just a really interesting puzzle. It's a riddle. Um, I've met people, we know there, uh, there are people for whom UFO tracking, UFO spotting is no different than bird watching or the train spotting, right? It's it's this exciting kind of cool thing. And there's no assumption that aliens are involved. What it is like, I would love to figure out what, what's behind this. This is kind of cool. So it's a hobby for some people. And there's all sorts of things in between. So I think the thing, however, that 
is that, to my mind, that made it what it is uh, originally uh, was in fact the f that, that this is all about certain kinds of innovative, mysterious technologies at a time that really is the beginning and then the height of the Cold War and space exploration. They all, these factors all sort of come together in the 50s when this all develops and it becomes a way to start to think about and comment on and to speculate on what are the limits of our knowledge? What are the limits of the things that we can make? And if they are relatively limitless, couldn't that be true of these things and these beings that could be out there in other worlds as well? And so it becomes a kind of a way to almost, and I, I see in many ways, to reflect on ourselves as we think through the possibilities of aliens visiting us or secret right, Soviet or American technologies that are out there in the skies above us. Um, all these kinds of things can trigger both fears, but they can also trigger a lot of enthusiasm and excitement as well. Well, I think, I mean, obviously the question of whether or not we're alone in the universe is the most, almost one of the most important questions, scientific questions that humanity can ask. And the consequences are, are, are very important either way that if you know Arthur C. Clarke said right um, either either we're alone in the universe or we aren't and either possibility is equally terrifying um, <laughs> right and and so I mean if we are alone then this is the only place that life that intelligent life has ever formed in the entire universe and if we mess this up if if we miss our chance and then the um, you know, the intelligent octopuses miss their chance and then eventually the sun bloats up and wipes out all life on earth. And then the only time that that intelligent life in the entire universe was here is gone. And then that's that. And then it's just rocks and, and plasma from now until the end of time. That's sad. Um, and then at the same on, on the other front, of course, and this is the one that I think, you know, I, I, I totally get that the UFO um, believers are like, it's, it seems crazy that they're not everywhere, that the universe is big and old. And this is the Fermi paradox, you know, the universe is big and old and they should be everywhere. And yet, and, and as our capability to explore our environment continues to push outward as our, as we gain more mastery over the resources of the solar system, that question just becomes more and more puzzling because if we could do it, if we, you know, stupid apes could figure this out, then, then of course, some other alien civilization should figure this out. And so the more we learn about what we can do, the more we start to realize what could be done, what, what, what others should be doing and could be doing. And that's why we, we search for them. Um, yeah. And, and so it absolutely makes sense to me that it is a topic of tremendous speculation. I would say for fully a third to a quarter of the episodes that I deal with on this channel are chipping away at this question of, are we alone in the universe? And, and so I absolutely understand the level of enthusiasm for the question. Yeah. Well, I mean, the interesting thing, right? I think a lot of people don't realize this is that historians of science have shown pretty decisively and conclusively that thinking about the possibility of intelligent civilizations outside of Earth dates back to the ancient world. And that by the 17th century in, in the Western world, the 17th century, most, most uh, educated people, most people tacitly accepted that as a fact, that there were intelligent 
life forms out there in the many of them, multiple, not only out there out in the universe, they were in our solar system, they were on the moon, they were on Mars. And that this is going to be something that continues well into the 19th, uh, turn, 19th century, turn of the 20th century. So the, the, the other thing that's kind of intriguing is that in many ways, it's with uh, certain developments in ast astronomy that around the early 20th century is when some of that, those ideas get chipped away at and people start to say, yeah, these, this is kind of ridiculous. No, Mars is barren. The moon right. is barren. So what's kind of fascinating to me is that this idea of the extraterrestrials visiting us, right, emerges while that is going on, not at the height of the belief in the, the idea that Mars is inhabited, but after, in fact, right. we've come to the conclusion that eh, likely these, these two things that you identify, I think, feed off of yeah, apologies. Uh, your internet is cutting out a little bit uh, yeah. from our from our side, but it's it's happening every every couple of minutes, so it's not it's not that bad. I don't know if we're if I'm cutting out from from your perspective. Um, uh, so, all right. So I'd like to just talk a bit about why this year has been so special. And can you, for people who aren't familiar with the Nimitz encounter, with the new evidence, you know, that that was released by the military, why was this such a hot button moment? Yeah. So what, what was revealed to us in December of 2017 was a fellow by the name of Luis Elizondo, who uh, came forward and, and publicly said to reporters at the Washington Post, Politico, and the New York Times that he had been working on or directed, a little unclear, this uh, program that the, was sponsored by the Defense Department for five years, from 2007 to 2012, that was involved in um, uh, collecting data and information and tracking UFO reports primarily from the military over that period of time. And part of what was revealed at that time were two videos. A third one was later revealed a few months later of these encounters that Navy pilots had had with some strange objects. And we have these this video footage that I think now for a lot of people has become pretty famous. Mm -hmm. We all seen these one be I believe it's it's the thumbnail for this interview <laughs> yeah there you go so we've all seen that stuff right um and uh we hear the pilots chatting about this stuff and who are perplexed by it and these odd movie things and they are I mean especially for someone like me who's not a specialist in aeronautics I looked at this up. I remember sharing this with colleagues of mine um, who were historians of, of, of aerospace and aeronautics, and they looked at it and they said, I don't know what the heck this stuff yeah. is. So it's all very strange, very yeah. bizarre, but don't know a lot of what we're looking at. So um, uh, all of this sort of then was the catalyst for now some follow-up questions over the last couple of years really sort of coming to a culmination this past year in 2019, as um, the Navy kept being asked, um, you know, uh, what, what is this? Can you tell us more about this? Information was hard to come by. In January of 2019, the, the, the Senate Armed, Armed, uh, Armed Forces Committee uh, asked for any reports that might have been 
come out of this program that had been run. They got a list of the title of those reports. Uh, things were even more mysterious after that because the reports don't seem to be about UFOs, but seem to be about things like stargates and wormholes. And yeah, that was pretty cool. I like that. Yeah, very cool stuff, yeah. but, but it didn't seem UFO related. Yeah. Um, and, and, and so uh, the more questions were asked. And finally, the Navy did, I think this must have been around the spring or something, if I recall right. Um, the Navy came out to, a, a spokesman came out and said that the Navy had, had, had initiated or set up these new protocols, these new guidelines for pilots to report UFOs, right? Um, uh, and this was very exciting to a lot of people because it seemed to be the first time that the Navy acknowledged that there were UFOs. Mm -hmm. um, the language that supposedly they used was not UFO, but, but UAPs, Unidentified Aerial Phenomenon. The Navy seems to have backed away from this over the past few months and said that is not in fact the case, that their, their language is the use of the term UAS, Unmanned Aerial uh, Systems, which it seems to imply they believe these things may be drones more than anything else. But mm -hmm. in any event, ne nevertheless, that acknowledgement seemed to feed this idea that there's something quite real going on. Yeah, These I mean, are that is the that is the stamp of approval, right? Like yeah. that that if, you know, these communities which have been communicating by newsletter and now communicating by internet have have gotten an official stamp of of approval from the US the, the people who should be keeping the secrets who have been hiding the evidence have actually admitted that yes indeed they have been seeing things that are weird and and have even posted some video of this um which is which is interesting to me as a as a separate tangent which is because it kind of undermines that whole idea that they're hiding the truth yeah well it's it's always the it's always the challenging thing here yeah. there's you know there there for for a long time i mean now it's earned the moniker of the disclosure movement but but already from really the very beginnings of the ufo phenomenon there is one uh, a kind of there, there's been uh, two tasks on the part of many ufologists one has been to figure out what the ufos are and the second part has been to get the government whatever government that is to reveal its secrets about UFOs, right? Uh, and of course, the, the, the problem, of course, that from the military standpoint that they have is that um, to talk about any of these things, to engage in this is to necessarily get into what's gonna be classified information about right. either what we know about potential enemies of the United States or uh, about technologies that are being used uh, by the United States military. And this is the case in other countries right. too, not just the United States. So there is this kind of, this constant tension of how much can these governments reveal the, 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 the sense that they're keeping something from us. Gallup poll, recent Gallup poll shows 69% of Americans think the United States government and military knows more about ufos than they are telling us right so this all this kind of furtiveness this kind of slowly leaking a little bit of information out, seems to only help reinforce that sentiment that they're not being straight with us about this stuff right 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 um and and i can see like from their perspective i mean if they've developed technology to capture images 
at high speed of objects that are far away that are moving very quickly, there's only so much of that they want to talk about their capability to sense potential aerial targets, enemy aircraft, enemy drones, enemy missiles, right? Um, and then at the same time, for them to be keeping track of, of developments by other nation states and their work in the air or in space, um, how much of that are they able to talk about, right? And so it's got to be a really fine line about about what they of what they can talk about without giving away either what their capabilities are, but also what they perceive to be the capabilities of the people that they're keeping an eye on are. Yeah, exactly. Right. And, and it, what it creates is it, again, if you go back, for instance, to 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 play the history card again. If you go back to the, uh, uh, particularly some of the earlier government programs, you know, uh, Project Grudge or the, the very famous Project Blue Book uh, that ran from the 50s up to 1969. Um, these were Air Force programs now, mind you, but, but they, their job was to investigate UFO reports. Part of what they early on started to realize is that, that, that a lot of the work they have to get themselves engaged in is work that a they're not really ready for and not terribly interested in that's PR work, you know, public relations. It's about how do we communicate about things that in many ways we're not supposed to be communicating about, or we're limited in the ways we can communicate right. that. How can we do that effectively without making people say, Everything coming out of your mouth, we don't believe. Or all this does is prove that you're lying to us or there's a conspiracy. And I think over time, what you saw in the case of Project Blue Book is that by the 1960s, the people in that program are just frustrated. They're, they're thoroughly frustrated because they just don't know how to win this game. And it is, it's a, it's a kind of a difficult game, but it is the game that people involved in intelligence always have to sort of face, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I mean, whether or not it's about aliens, right? You've got to, you've got to walk that balancing line between, you know, the public is concerned about how, I mean, just like, like, just imagine like mass surveillance on internet usage, right? Um, how are governments listening in on your personal phone calls and, your encrypted messages that are you're sending back and forth on your browser. Um, do you want them to be able to do that? Are they allowed to tell us if they can do that? I mean, you could just you know, take that whole concept of what of how you feel about, say, Edward Snowden, and just apply that to anything that is related to the government. And in theory, it's their job to both to both protect and stop what other governments are doing without getting caught doing it. And I can't even imagine that. So, all right. So, so we enter this, you know, the year of the UFO and, and the case that you make on, in your essay, which I really enjoyed, I think, and tell me if I'm getting this wrong, is that, is that although some of the details are different, the theme is the same as what we've seen before. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, <clears throat> no, there's no question. Uh, there's no question that that you know we've got different sort of cast of characters. We have 
uh, uh, different kinds of technologies and, and storylines that, that are sort of playing out that, uh, on an individual basis. But, but basically what, what's intriguing to me is that when you view this over time and over the many decades now, we're almost at what, what is it, 70 some odd years that this has been going on, um, uh, what you see is that by and large, the way in which UFOs have been captured people's imagination, kept people's attention, and sparked new people to get interested in it, has been through storylines, has been through stories. It's not enough to tell, to say to people, there's a weird thing somebody saw in the sky. If you actually look at UFO reports, at people's reports and sightings, and I've looked at these things in the United States in Project Blue Book. There's, uh, I've seen the same kinds of things in France uh, and, and seen some stuff from Sweden and Great Britain. Most reported sightings that people have historically are amazingly mundane and not very dramatic. They are, they, they are about some person who says, you know, oh, I was walking the dog, saw some weird lights in the sky. I thought, wow, that's odd. Hmm, maybe I should tell somebody. And that's it. Mm -hmm. uh, what, what happens and what really, I think, made the UFO phenomenon uh, uh, something that became a sociologically important phenomenon and something that sustained itself all these decades is that um, there were stories that were more elaborate. There were... Um, uh, people who got involved, who couched themselves in the position of being, you know, crusaders for truth. Uh, there were people who were demonized as people trying to hide the story or institutions like the government or military bases that were keeping things from. And so you introduce what, for lack of a better term, we'll call melodrama, right? And by turning this into a kind of a set of stories or a, or a sort of uber story, um, think of, you know, Think of something like the X-Files in the 1990s, right? Mm -hmm. Did it really effectively? What, what you do is you create a kind of an energy about it, an excitement about it, a, a kind of thing that you want to know how this is going to end. And you get invested in the characters. And that's what's been created. So we have the very same kinds of plot twists, the same kinds of things. Government not being straightforward with us. Truth tellers out there who are trying to get the story out people who are following this and sharing this information with other people, um, uh, 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 trying to find money to study this phenomenon, uh, condemnation of, of academics and scientists and, and people in government who are um, either uh, uh, nefariously trying to thwart truth seekers and crusaders, or perhaps what they're doing is they're just too uh, close-minded to accept the truth. All of that's there. All of those are there. We just sort of have shifted around, I think, a lot of the characters. And that to me, from, like I say, a sociological historical standpoint, to me is intriguing because it shows that there's this great continuity in the story of the UFO. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so the, and so, I mean, even though we are going through this, you know, the year of the UFO, um, the, the song is the same. We've seen the same kinds of characters and it's, and I'll bet you it's the same, um, theme again and again across like there's clearly just common threads that play out in many different kinds of phenomena like this if it's got all the right 
parts of the recipe. And so it has to come together in a very specific way to reach a certain tipping point. Yeah, I think so. I, we'd see this if we were looking at other kinds of, of, of social phenomenon that, that are uh, ephemeral and ethereal sort of uh, like this. Uh, people, people have done studies have talked about, you know, uh, uh, ghosts and things like that in somewhat similar ways, right? Way, things that um, uh, people uh, carry deeply about are, uh, believe are very, very tangible and very, very real, but are phenomena that are very, very difficult <laughs> to prove their existence, right? And so that kind of thing, that kind of spectral I, way I, I think about this sort of spectral element makes it very conducive to having to find inventive novel ways of talking about it, representing it in some way that people can really understand and latch on to. So... I mean, let's talk a bit about the evidence because, you know, like, and there's some people in the comments, some people I recognize who I've had lots of arguments with on, on my channel. Right. And, you know, I have mentioned time and time again, that, that personally, I consider the question to be whether or not there is life in the universe to be the most important question we can possibly ask. I mentioned that earlier in the video. I want to know the answer. I really want to know the answer if we're alone or not. So, so when people post and say that I'm, you know, not, I don't know, like I'm just being a curmudgeon or whatever, it's, it's only that I'm so interested in the answer being right that I want to make sure that the evidence is, is compelling. And, and so the, but the problem is, is that the evidence isn't compelling. And I understand that a lot of people are very convinced by it. I'm not. Um, and, and so I firmly put things into the camp so far of unidentified flying objects. It's right there in the name, unidentified. Um, is, the, is that part of it as well, that, that the, the evidence is, is eyewitness testimony? The evidence is, you know, fuzzy little blips on a green night vision infrared camera that it is that is you know like if the evidence was more testable and either provably right or provably wrong it would be it would go one way or the other but because it's like right on that knife's edge here we are yeah, yeah. i mean you're quite right evidence sort of gets to this um, and you, you, I will say to be fair, you will hear some people, I hear this from colleagues of mine, sometimes who say, you know, you can present people with the counter evidence to all of this and say how f problematic the evidence is. You'll never convince these people. Um, I don't think that's actually true. I think we've got plenty of cases where you can see the fact that, that longtime ufologists, I've met any number of them, particularly veterans, you know, been around a long time, who's at, they will say straight to you, you know, I've been looking at this a long time. I've been looking for the evidence. I thought at various times I had something compelling. And frankly, I just have never come up with it. I still wonder, or I still maybe lean to the direction that these are extraterrestrials. But to be honest with you, I just don't have the evidence. I've seen that with plenty of people. So I think people can be convinced one way or the other about these things. When it comes to the evidence, the thing that's interesting to me is that, um, in a sense, one of the things I find engaging and, and really interesting that is, again, another 
absolutely sort of central element in the long history of the UFOs is this seeming, and in, it really has been there. It's not, I shouldn't say it's just seeming, this antagonism between sort of mainstream academic science and the ufology community. And a lot of this hinges on this issue of evidence. And on one hand, what you have is I think um, what, we, what you see go on is that at an early stage in the 1950s, even into the 1960s, there were a, a number of very serious ufologists who clearly believed and thought that what they were is yes, they, they seemed fringe right now, but eventually what's going to happen is one day the community is going to come around just like a lot of amateur astronomers discovered amazing things right yeah. over over the many centuries uh, that they would be proven right and that one day all of this would evolve into its own academic field you you assumingly you'd have a department of ufology out there, right and that kind right. of I'm um, so that the evidence would become overwhelming. It would accumulate over time and would just become something that that one couldn't resist anymore. Um, on the, and, and so there's there from their standpoint, the the uh, and, and I can understand academia looks to be like a closed minded, closed sort of sect, uh, almost a cult that refuses to entertain any other possibilities. On the other side, and I, I think that that can sometimes be true, I think it's not entirely true, mm -hmm. because I think that, um, as you see, if you just you know look at some of the discussions about the uh, 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 Umuamua, this, this interesting thing that also is part of the story in 2019, right, that this interstellar object, you have people like Avi Loeb at yep. Harvard who are more than happy to talk, or the people at SETI who are happy to talk about and entertain all sorts of possibilities. On the other side, to go back to what I was saying, the other side, I do think there's plenty of evidence to show that over the course of, of, of the many decades of this phenomenon, a lot of scientists, their reaction to any kind of speculation about intelligent life forms and the, they're possibly visiting Earth or passing by Earth, uh, to treat it as utter, complete nonsense, as mm -hmm. ridiculous, and something to be made fun of. And that element of kind of contemptuous ridicule yeah. that I think is a part of the history of science, we can't, we can't, we can't neglect that. It's there, mm -hmm. and it's been part of it. That has not served the science. I totally agree. Community. Yeah. Yeah. Right? I, I mean... Uh, you and I were talking before this this episode. Just um, you, uh, Jason Wright, who also works at Penn State University, um, uh, is one of my favorite uh, exoplanetary researchers. I had I've done an inter interview with him, and we spent we've spent you know several times talking about about aliens and the search for for life in the universe and what he calls in you know, what they call techno signatures and they they bring together um uh groups of people from around the world to try to figure out really clever ways to sense any kind of evidence whatsoever of any kind of technological civilization and you know and he says like we're okay now with maybe looking for for dumb aliens. What's wrong with looking for smart aliens, right? <laughs> um, which I which I think is is exactly right. And I think I think you're right that there is definitely um, like so many things in our modern society, there is this deep rift between 
between two groups of people. I mean, like, I'll be honest, the UFO fans, the UFO believers, the UFO conspiracy theorists are the meanest in general group of people on my YouTube channel. They are the quickest to say really awful things to me. And I will politely in my gentle Canadian way, um, you know, uh, <laughs> apologize. Um, and I, and I think that, that there's, there's, there's something, you know, back to that sort of psychology issue. There's something about, about being self-perceived outside of the mainstream and trying to, to be seen as legitimate. And that almost like a, like a parent that won't give you that, that won't recognize you causes a, some kind of just, the, there's some kind of tension that, that goes on there. And it just, I just see it again and again and again with why won't you take us seriously? Why won't we take the work that we're doing seriously? Um, and yeah. the scientists just like why do you need us to take you seriously? Right? Why, why, why do the UFO ufologists need to be taken seriously? How will that change or improve anything? Do you think that that's, what's the heart of that? Well, I mean, uh, I'll, I'll give you a historical example of what I, uh, when I think about this. So uh, in, in the 1960s, right, from 1966 to 68, uh, a very famous ufology folks know this case very well, what they would call it infamous scientific commission was created at the University of Colorado led by Edward Condon, a famous physicist and referred to as the Condon committee, right? To study UFOs funded by the air force, but supposedly an independent committee. Um, I'm not going to get into the, the, all the different melodramatic politics that went on and why the whole thing sort of just unraveled on itself. Um, but to me, one of the most interesting things is looking at the archives, as I have, and looking at a letter exchange. After the, they had done their work, his committee came to the conclusion that there was nothing to the UFO. It was not worthy of study by natural scientists, maybe psychologists and sociologists and historians would want to study, but nobody else. Um, and uh, he's, his attitude was, that's the final result of the report. After that, right as that's done, he gets into a discussion with a very young, famous astronomer who might, whose name might be familiar to you, Carl Sagan, right? Carl Sagan has said, oh, we're, we're the, the AAAS, what is it, the American, what is it, Advancement of American Science? Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. Like that. Yeah, the American Association for the Advancement of Science. Advancement of Science, thank you. Yeah. Uh, we're gonna, we want to hold, I want to create a panel, several panels at the next meeting on the UFO phenomenon. And he writes Condon, he said, you know, you just finished this report, you should be on this. Condon writes him back and says, why in hell would I want to be involved in this? I have, we have written our report, it is done. That is the end of the issue. There is no point in talking to these, these intolerable, stupid people who can't get it. And basically, the, I'm paraphrasing, but trust me, that's the way he talked about these things. Um, they're thick-headed. They're incompetent. They don't want to learn anything. I, the, we have, we've reached our conclusion. It's done. It's a settled question. Sagan writes back and says, I understand your frustration. And I, I too care about science and, and people knowing 
things based on empirical research. He said, but you're kind of missing the mark. This is not about saying, now that we've done our study, it's all settled, it's all done. He says, this is part of what our responsibility is as scientists, is to engage with the public generally, have conversations, um, try to show each other what it is that we feel is important and exchange those ideas, not in a way that is pedantic, but in a way in which we try to actually learn something about our positions. Um, you know, Sagan is going to go on to become the great right. scientist and good at this. Condon represented a kind of an old world or an older school of, of scientific thought, right? Where the great master teaches all the students who must listen. And I think to some extent, Sagan, of course, I think has been proven to be right. That, that, that yeah, one can be, I suppose, you know, dismissive and say there's no point to this. Um, there, there's, there's no question in my mind that the price of admission to a conversation is everybody has to be acting in good faith mm -hmm. and not be, you know, cast, ca, uh, ca, uh, casting personal aspersions of people. But if as long as people are willing to take part in that conversation, in a, in, a, in a thoughtful, careful manner, I think those are important things to do. And I think that was Sagan's sort of point. So I do think there's something to be learned. I think there is something to know. Um, and, to, and to, to, to be attentive to in that regard. And I guess that would, that kind of very kind of at least slightly more humble, humble, humbled and humbling position that Sagan staked out to me is a valuable one. So um, I'd love to throw a couple of questions that are coming in from the audience here. Um, this one comes from Arjone. Um, uh, what would UFO believing people do if we actually had formal meetings with aliens? Would they be satisfied or would they find something else? To obsess about so so what do you think i mean if we actually we were absolutely certain the evidence was unequivocal that we knew that there were other civilizations out there and they were able to directly arrive here on earth and meetings had happened would people be looking for even more advanced ufos or would they would it just be the way we treat other uh, countries yeah, that's a great, that's a really interesting question. I kind of like that one. I mean, so I would say a, a couple of things. Again, it depends on, you know, what kind of folks you're talking about in the community. Um, you know, for some people, that would represent a deeply, deeply spiritual moment in history. And I think one of the things that you would, you would probably see is the emergence of, yeah, certain kinds of new... UFO religions, I think, might be might be something that would emerge and evolve. But I think the number one thing that comes to my mind is something that most ufologists were always sort of thinking through and thinking about um, from a very early stage in the early 1950s. And that was the problem of communication. <laughs> How do we communicate with them? Which is interesting because setting the same thing, right? <laughs> Is, is this question, SETI's interested in it, they were interested in it and still are. So I think one of the things would be, uh, would, would become the next order of business would be, how do we light on a way to understand the way they think, their motives, their motivations, what are their intentions? How can we communicate what our intentions are? 
Um, I, I think that kind of thing would emerge. We also know that there are some communities who, no question about it, believe that uh, it, aliens have been visiting us, they have been here, and they are here, and they actually are up to no good. Right. So I think some people would translate it into the next step would be the need to form military alliances, right? And would start to, that would be the next category of, of concerns and issues that they would raise. How do we defend ourselves? I think that would be a, a, for some, some people in some sectors of that, that community. I mean, as a historian, is there a, an example in history that gives us any kind of guideline to what it might be like for us pre and post uh, confirmation of, of intelligent extraterrestrials? especially ones that maybe we can't actually reach, right? <laughs> I, I, I think the closest we've come to is, you know, I think it was Stephen J. Hawking and others have mentioned, mentioned this, right? Is that um, uh, the, 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 the analogy that would be closest is to what it's been like for uh, people who have been colonized by, yeah. by foreigners from places way beyond any, any realm that they had ever encountered or experienced before. Native Americans, right, mm -hmm. uh, uh, in the New World, uh, encountering Europeans, right? Um, and that, um, A, it would, it, would, it would be quite difficult at first to figure out what you're dealing with here. And then, of course, would come the questions about what do they intend mm -hmm. what are their intentions what do they want how do we sort of get on with their presence should we be fearful about them um or are these a group of of of, of, of people who we can uh, form some sort of alliance with in some ways to sort of move on and move forward i think that's the closest yeah. thing i mean it has never worked out well no right like i can't think of an example where two groups of vastly different capabilities met and the far more powerful group was respectful, kind and hands off and nothing but nurturing to, to the less technologically capable group that they interacted with. I mean, maybe you're a historian, not me, um, but none, I, I, none come I, to I, mind I, for me. I'm trying to get my head wrapped around it too. I don't know that I yeah. can think of anything offhand. The asymmetry, as right. you point out, would be it because the, the what what everybody has always said, right? And and a lot of the the people on the side of SETI who've been speculating about what an encounter would be like have t raised this very issue. Now there are many of them in that that in, in, in those scholars who work in that. I've been reading about this recently. Who make the argument that well these people these these civilizations would be so advanced their the development of their concept of altruism would also be more, more higher developed than ours right i don't know about that but <laughs> but i agree with you i think the ex human experience has been that when you have an asymmetrical hierarchically di divergent sort of encounter it does not tend to go well <laughs> yeah for the yeah and uh, and any civilization capable of mastering the kinds of energies involved to reach our planet from some distant location, asymmetry would be the name of the game. Yeah. Um, a question from Larry Beckham. I've heard that eyewitnesses are frequently unreliable. Why? What is sort of the 
expectation of eyewitness testimony from a historical standpoint? Yeah. Well, I, you know, I think when it comes to eyewitness testimony, I, I still think, it, it, first of all, I think, um, uh, you know, psychologists, uh, uh, perceptual and cognitive psychologists still ha have probably the best and the last word on this kind of thing about all the kinds of very, very easy ways in which it's possible for literally your eyes to deceive you or your eyes and brain to deceive you about things you see, things like depth perception, things like the size of objects. Um, and this includes not just, you know, everyday folks like you and me, but uh, 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 seasoned pilots uh, make, can make all sorts of errors. So it, it, part of it is, it is the psychology of it. I would say another, another feature of it, though, that you can see by the reports is, uh, first of all, as I say, the vast, vast majority of reported sightings are very, very fleeting. And, and by that, what I mean is, uh, uh, I was just reading something, uh, an archival source just recently was from the uh, early 50s, saying that most sightings that were coming to the United States Air Force were sightings that took place no more than about two to three seconds. Um, yeah. So one of the things is, is that their point wasn't, it wasn't just that, that um, uh, witnesses were unreliable, it's that they couldn't be clear. It was impossible when you see something for such a brief period of time and comes out of nowhere, right? It's unexpected for you to be able to quickly sort of gather yourself, figure out what you're seeing, and then to describe it later. And so when you look again at the raw reports that, that come in to agencies across the world, most of them are not elaborate. They are very, they are very brief. Mm -hmm. They're very vague. Uh, for all the good reasons, because people didn't expect to see these things. Right. Um, all right. I got one. I think we got time for one more question. Um, this comes from True Viv. I have a question. Assuming advanced alien intelligence exists and a group of humans know and have proof, why would they not share it with others? Uh -huh. the, the aliens themselves. Well, why would, I guess, the people who know that the aliens exist, why would they not share the information? Uh -huh. Oh, there's a lot about that. So this, this and and um, uh, this has developed uh, over the years, particularly around the around 1980, um, is when a particular sort of of, of, of of a narrative that is developed into its own sort of community, uh, often referred to as as the dark side, the dark side hypothesis. Uh, and the argument there is a, it's a conspiracy theory argument. And it is the idea that um, there are people who know and akin to the X-Files, um, these are people who, who are uh, either uh, uh, um, uh, military officials, government officials, United States, maybe Great Britain. Sometimes it's the United Nations has knowledge of this and in fact have been working with the aliens for decades that in fact, they, what happened is they knew already in the 50s that they were the aliens, they got together with them, secretly met, and what they did is they formed um, a, a secret alliance and a secret treaty with one another. And in that treaty, what they are doing is there was an agreement made, some say in sometime in the early 1960s, an agreement made between the aliens and these other government officials, and the agreement was a trade-off. The aliens get to perform their experiments on certain human beings, 
the alien abduction phenomenon. And in return, what they do is they provide people like the United States Air Force, the United States Navy, with secret, secret weapons and cloaking technologies and things like that. And they can use those. So the reason they don't share this information with us is that it's part of a, an, um, not just an, uh, a national, not just an earthly, but it, what would you say? Interplanetary. Intergalactic, yeah. Interplanetary, yeah. Yeah, conspiracy. Right. Yeah. And so, I mean, whenever you need to, you can just take your conspiracy up one level, add another order of yeah. magnitude and, and conspiracy reconnected. Right. Yeah. And, and that's a, and you know, I, I really like that sort of that idea that, that three people can, what is it? Three people can keep a secret if two of them are dead. Yeah. Right. <laughs> right. That, that, yeah. that no one can keep a secret. And, yeah. and, the, and, and that, and like, like whenever anyone really uses a conspiracy argument with me, I find that one of the, I mean, obviously there have been conspiracies and they have been kept. So the conspiracies are a real thing for sure. Um, but I still don't find that as, as sort of the best place to start an argument is a conspiracy. And then, you know, this idea that I have that like with UFOs, right, you can't, you can't, they're unidentified flying objects and you can't unidentify yourself to knowledge. Yeah. And, and so until we can just get more information, it just, I just have, for me, um, and I'm, I know there's a lot of people in the comments, a lot of people watch my videos, they're just, they can't wait for me to be convinced. I'm, <laughs> you know, um, I'm, I just, I find the evidence uncompelling so far. But I am with you in agreement, and by with you I mean the people who who are making these comments, in mm. it being the most interesting question we can possibly ask. And I can't wait for us to find out the answer. Uh, now, Greg, you are working on a book that people are going to be able to uh, to read soon, which will cover some of these these topics. So, yeah. what's it going to be about? When when's it going to be done? All right. So um, the publisher asked me to ask you. You sound, you sound when, like my editor. I know. I know. Your editor asked me <laughs> to nag you when the book's going to be done. So, so it is a history of the UFO and alien contact phenomenon from the beginnings in 1946 and 47 with ghost rockets over Sweden and Kenneth Arnold sighting over in Washington state to the present. And it's gonna focus not just on the United States, but the global phenomenon and how it's played out and how it's changed over time, um, uh, significantly so in some really, really surprising ways. And I hope it's gonna be kind of, yeah, interesting, strange, and, and also really surprising for readers. I uh, hope to have the book done by the fall, which means that maybe, who knows, if everything goes well, 2021. Right. Yeah. yeah. Uh, as long as you hit that deadline. <laughs> Got to hit that deadline. All right. Well, uh, Greg, it was an absolute pleasure talking to you. Um, and I really, uh, I hope this, I'm sure for a lot of people watching, this was not the conversation they wanted to see. Um, but for a bunch of the people I know, I hope this is, uh, this was really entertaining. I had a good time. Uh, absolute pleasure talking with you and uh, good luck with the book. Um, I'll, I'll let everyone know once it comes out. So 
Thanks a lot, everybody. Thanks to, uh, to the moderators and thanks to everyone keeping a fairly civil conversation in the uh, in the discussion. I'm uh, I'm quite impressed. It came together pretty well. So um, thanks, everyone, for for participating in the conversation, watching the show and um, new episode comes out tomorrow all about. Finally, you're asking me telescopes on the far side of the moon. I the whole episode on that. Um, Friday is an episode on the future of gravitational wave research and a week today comes is going to be an episode all about the search for a shadow biosphere here on Earth. So uh, so stay tuned. Lots of good episodes coming. All right, Greg, thank you so much. And we'll see all of you uh, next week.